during this time, this season of Advent, uh, we've been walking through what we call the songs of Advent these past couple of weeks. So week one, we talked about God's great symphony. We talked about this overarching song of God that, that's in his story, that's in the Bible and in even creation today. Last week, we talked about what we called the Messiah's song. This song from the book of Isaiah and this prophecy from 800 years before Jesus came, talking about God's plan for the darkness, that he would bring a light in the darkness and that he would make us bearers of that light. We said like Christmas trees in the dark, right? Christmas lights in the dark. And so now we're moving up 800 years and we've come to the book of Luke, New Testament, Holy Scripture, that details the life of Jesus. And so we're getting closer to the birth of Jesus now. We're looking at what's uh, Mary's song today, and it's called the Magnificat often. Uh, Mary has a song in the Bible. Right? Did you know that Mary actually has a song in the Bible? And it's remarkable. Now, there aren't too many songs about Mary around Christmas time, right? Uh, Mary doesn't really get a lot of attention during Christmas time. And I know Christmas is about Jesus, but you'd think she'd show up more in our songs, right? I mean, we've got little drummer boy. There's no evidence that he was actually at the birth of Jesus, right? We've got the song, We Three Kings. No one knows if there were actually three. Uh, there were three types of gifts, but no count of the actual kings, right? We make exceptions for them. Uh, and they weren't actually there when Jesus was born either. They came later. Uh, but what about Mary? Right? And, an author named Michael Linton, he actually took the time to count, and uh, apparently after surveying 381 religious carols, that means Dominic, the Italian Christmas donkey, was not included in this count. Uh, after looking at 381 Chris, uh, Christmas carols, only 27% referenced Mary at all. And of the 10 most popular, the ones that you just have to sing in church and during the season, um, there were only three, right? And so Christmas isn't about Mary, right? It's about Jesus. But you'd think that the mother of our Lord would show up more. Now, if you had to say, uh, you know, find out what a Christmas song, if you had to share a Christmas carol that highlights Mary's role or perspective, uh, which one would you say? You can participate. A song, Christmas song about Mary, or that talks about Mary a lot. What child is this? Mary, did you know? That's the one I had on my mind. Mary, did you know? Every year, uh, there seems to be a lighthearted debate about the song, Mary, did you know? Right? Some people are a little more passionate than others in this debate. Uh, it was a song that was written in 1984 by Mark Lowry. It was a poem first and then became a song in 91. Uh, but, you know, every year this, this debate kind of swells up and uh, there's a contingency of people that think that the song is completely foolish because they say, of course Mary knew, right? The angel Gabriel told her this song is ridiculous, right? They lay out all the scripture to refute the song. You know, we Christians can be fun people like that, right? <laughs> Some have even gone so far as to say that the author is mansplaining the incarnation to Mary, right? A newer term maybe for some of you, but mansplaining, a man explaining to Mary what it means to, to have Jesus. Uh, others say that Mary did know some of what was said, 
right? But that there's no way she could have known all the details of what Jesus was going to accomplish in his life, that the blind would see, that the deaf would hear, that the dead would live again, right? Did she know Jesus would die? Others think it's simply a song reflecting on the wonder of the incarnation and the work of God through his son, that it's asking a rhetorical question that was never intended to be answered, right? And that we should just get over ourselves and read the poetry and enjoy the holidays, right? I'll let you guess which one, which one I hold to. Um, that aside, there's something awe-inspiring about the images of Christ and his work in that song, even aside from the question. But I think it's safe to say that this is Mary's big song, right, in, in modern times these days. Now, the sad part is that we're probably better acquainted with that song than we are with Mary's song in the Bible, than we are with the Magnificat. Has anyone heard that word before, Magnificat? It sounds kind of weird. Uh, but that's what this song has historically been named. It's a Latin word that just simply means to magnify. Right? And this is arguably the first ever Christmas carol. It's sung by Mary when she was one month pregnant with Jesus. And this song is not like a lot of our sentimental Christmas carols that we hear today. This is a serious song sung by a serious woman of the faith. Right? It's so serious, this song, that it's been banned in certain countries at various points in history. Right? It's true, this song has been banned in particular countries at various points in history because it's a song that scares certain people. And it should. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but we're going to talk about Mary's song today. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, uh, and it begins with, My soul magnifies the Lord. That's why it's called the Magnificat. Before we jump into the song, I want to orient us in, in the story, at what point we're in the story. So Mary, you know the big details, right? She's young, she's a virgin, she's engaged to Joseph. She's told by the angel Gabriel that she's going to bear a son. And his words from verse 32 are that he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Right? If you were here last week, does that sound familiar? Right? Last week we talked about this prophecy from Isaiah 800 years earlier. And now the time has come. And as an encouragement, the angel Gabriel, he tells Mary, and consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. So her relative Elizabeth, this soon-to-be mother of John the Baptist, right, She's too old to have a baby, but she and her husband conceive a baby by the miracle of God. And so God has this multifaceted kindness on display. Not only does he give Elizabeth what she's been praying for, he gives a comfort to Mary through Elizabeth. This is the way that God works. He can bless all of us at the same time in an intricate and beautiful way. After this, the scripture says, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah. 
And now one biblical scholar uh, estimated that this was a 70-mile journey. And so it sounds like she just ran over to the house next door to talk to her cousin, but she uh, hurried 70 miles. That would be like walking to Boston from here. And so it's about a 24-hour walking journey if you didn't stop at all. So it's, it probably took her a few days. So she hurried there, and when she arrived, she entered the house, and she greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, this is now verse 41 in Luke 1, when she heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Now, it's as if God has wired this connection between John and Jesus in such a way that John was made to recognize him, even in the womb. But it's not wiring. It's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It was John's job from the beginning that he would identify Jesus, that he would go before Jesus and prepare a way. And this culminates when he sees Jesus in adulthood, walking by in John 1.29, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But here, here he is confirming the identity of Jesus to his own mom from within the womb. And that confirmation inspires Mary, who has said very few words beyond her acceptance of God's plan for her to have Jesus. And it inspires Mary to break out with a song. It inspires her to break out with a song of praise. Now, Elizabeth first speaks to her, and she says, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. And then she speaks in third person. It's almost as if she speaks as if she's speaking to us. She says, Blessed is she who has believed with the, that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. As if she's inviting us to respond in faith as well. We're invited to respond to God's word in faith, and we're invited to be blessed as well. So let's just keep that in mind as we soak up the bold words of this song, as we walk through this song of praise. As we walk through it, we're going to see her praise for God for his action in her life. That's the first focus. The second fo focus is the praise for God for his actions in the world. And so this song hits personal and global notes. On the heels of Elizabeth calling her blessed, Mary's response in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. And that word there, magnify, it means to cause something or someone to be held in greater esteem, right? To glorify, to exalt, to lift up. Now, God is really big in Mary's heart in this moment. The magnitude of his glory has welled up in her soul, in her very being. And all she can do is praise him and share that joy with the entire room. And so who is she magnifying? She's magnifying the Lord. And who did Elizabeth say was in her womb? The Lord. And sometimes we miss the glimpses of, of our triune God of the Trinity in scripture, but if we pay attention, we see Mary is carrying the Son of God the Father. 
And these two ladies are shouting for joy, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working in complete unison. Right? One God in three persons. And Mary, who's carrying the Lord, she magnifies him as the God of the universe. Again, this is why her song has inherited that name, the Magnificat, because she is magnifying God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's verse 47. Now, this line, like, like many others in the song, the song is set up in these parallel lines. So it's intended to stand parallel with the first line. They're saying very similar things with different nuances, driving home a message, right? Mary is full of joy, like to her deepest core. And God is the reason for that joy. So she's praising him for it. And so who is she rejoicing in? And she, she calls him God, my Savior. Right, Mary, did you know this child that you deliver will soon deliver you? Those powerful words, right? It sounds like she knew that much, right? She calls God her Savior. And this is important for folks who are coming from religious backgrounds where Mary is sometimes venerated as perfect, right? Some traditions have made too much of Mary. Some traditions have made too little of Mary, too, but some traditions have made too much of Mary to the point where she is at perfection and wouldn't need a savior. But here she is. She's calling God her savior, right? And some traditions we have essentially erased Mary out of fear of making too much of her, right? We don't want to overact to overreact to that and make too little of her either, right? Mary was unique. She was not sinless. She didn't see herself this way. See, the sinless don't need a savior, right? But Mary rejoices in her savior. Mary was blessed. The Bible says that she was unique, right? And her place in history is unique. We should honor her story, right? No one else has done what Mary has done, right? What God did through her. Right? We should honor her as a faithful servant of the Lord. And if we're Christian, then a fellow disciple of Jesus and a sister in Christ who showed remarkable faith in a very, very difficult situation. She walked a really hard road. Right? So we won't worship her. We won't pray to her or consider her innately holy without the work of God. But this was no ordinary woman. Right? This was no ordinary person. So what does she say? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. That's the what of it all, right? But why? Why is she having this reaction? What's the meaning behind it? She goes on to tell us, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. God chose Mary. This young woman from Nazareth, an area that we know from other biblical passages, had a poor reputation. She was likely poor, right? We know that when she brings Jesus to the temple with Joseph, they offer two pigeons as a sacrifice. That was the provision made for folks who were under, like below the poverty line, right? They were permitted instead of offering a lamb that they could offer two pigeons. They were cheaper. She was young. She was inexperienced. This is her humble condition, as she calls it. But God looked with favor on it, 
on her. She says, surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And she was. For eternity, she will always be known as the mother of Jesus. Only one woman gets to say that. Right? So she's rejoicing in God because of what he has done for her. He has elevated her. And now her soul is elevating him. And this is a theme in her song, a motif throughout scripture that shows God elevating the lowly and bringing low the elevated. Right? That's not what pagan gods and the surrounding nations did. They did not do that for people. Right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6, it's all over the Bible in different wording. She goes on to expand on these reasons why she's magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God. And she says in verse 49, because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. Mary has experienced the heart of God personally. Right? He's done great things for her and his name is holy. His name is sacred. There's no one like him. Right? He's set apart. He's altogether different. He's distinguished. But here's the thing, right? Yes, Mary carried Jesus, right? And she's talking about that. But she's not only talking about that. God is her Savior, and that experience is open to all. Right? It's open to you. It's open to me. God is a personal Savior. And he saves individuals by grace for free, through faith, through belief, in his son, Jesus. So we may not have carried Jesus physically like Mary, right? But we can carry him in our souls, in our hearts, the way that she does in this song. So God is a personal savior. And as one Christmas carol puts it, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Now the next line of Mary's song, it says as much about how universal God's salvation is as previously when she said how personal it was. She says his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. And now when we talk about fearing God, we have to understand that the fear being talked about here is not terror. It's not fear the way you fear an abusive parent or when you're walking to your car in a bad place at night, right? We have to balance this term with the other things the Bible says about God. And one of God's favorite commands is fear not when people encounter him, right? Another passage says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. So, so how do we reconcile these things? I mean, if you want to see the clearest expression of people who don't fear God, look at merciless dictators, right? People who act like they're God, people who keep elevated the proud, people who oppose the humble. And fearing God is a recognition of how big he is and how small we are, right? It's a recognition that of all the things we give weight and importance to in our lives, God should come first, not others, not our own desires, not what people think of us, right? We fear a lot of things, probably more things than we're willing to admit or more things than we know. And most often, I think we fear each other. Like, what happens when you fear a person? You let them affect the way you behave. 
You give them a seat on the throne of your heart. You give them prominence in your life that they haven't earned, nor do they deserve. Right? The fear of God is to recognize that he's bigger than you, and he's bigger than all your other fears. Right? It's to give God the seat on the throne of your heart. It's to allow God to affect your behavior. It's to give God the prominence in your heart that he deserves. Right? And it is an acknowledgement of the magnificent power that he has. The, the sheer largeness of God should give you a hint of fear. But the difference between God and humanity is that God offers unconditional love. Right? God has shown his love by sending his son into the world. His mercy is from generation to generation for those who fear him, Mary says. But that fear word, it's really not the part that we're supposed to be hung up on. It wouldn't have been unusual for people to read back then. I, I want to explain it because I know it's a hang up for our modern ears. But the main message of this line is that mercy is extended universally. That means it's extended to you and to me, but also to the world. Right? On a global scale, God is a personal savior. And what I love about Mary's song is that it doesn't end on a note of what God has done for Mary. Right? Her joy is not only in what God has done for her, but in what he's going to do through her. Right? What her son is going to do. And any sense of a dainty Mary is lost at this point in the song that we're about to head into. This is a serious woman, right, talking about serious things. This is the Mary whose words were banned in certain countries. We're going to talk about why that is. Let's look at these words. Verse 51. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. In other words, the days are numbered. Right? The days are numbered for the proud who gather to conspire together, who target the vulnerable, who amass wealth corruptly, who traffic image bearers of God, who enslave their laborers. This baby will scatter them. Right? The days are numbered for the mighty who are on their thrones and oppressing their people, who are starving their people, stealing from their people. This baby will topple them off their thrones. Right? And he will lift up the people who are under their feet. The days are numbered for the hungry. This baby will satisfy them. The days are numbered for the rich. This baby will send them away empty. Mary's words are serious. Mary's words are revolutionary. They're powerful. In the 80s, Guatemala banned them from use in religious services. The song was starting to stir the impoverished masses. The British Empire, when they had colonial rule over India, they banned this song from being sung in churches. I wonder why. Right? Argentina banned it for a period of time as well. See, this truth is scary to those who don't fear God. Because God elevates the humble and he opposes the proud. That switch scares people. Mary, did you know that your song was revolutionary? Right? And I think she did. 
See, if she were outside Elizabeth's house singing this song loudly from the hills, she might have been arrested. Mary was in Roman-occupied Israel. These would have been seen as rebellious words back then. And they were. See, from slave owner to dictator, the proud have feared true Christianity. It's outlawed in North Korea. American slave owners, they gave their slaves versions of the Bible with passages like this cut out, right? Or they forbid them from learning to read altogether because the belief that God elevates the humble and opposes the proud is a powerful thing in a person's soul and a dangerous thing if you have elevated yourself. A good question to ask for those of us with religious freedom, right, and who call ourselves believers in Jesus, a good question to ask, would my faith get me in trouble with these guys? Would my faith make me a target? Or would I slip under the radar? Does my faith actually have any consequence to my neighbors who are in need of some elevation, nearby or across the world? Right? And when I ask that question, I'm not judging, I'm not assuming that it's not, by the way, but it's a question that we need to ask, and not just today, but over and over and over again, because the drift is really easy. Now, if you struggle to come up with an answer, that's okay, too. That's a starting place. You know, often it's overwhelming. We're unsure what we can do. And one of the things that we've done as a church is we have this part on our website, uh, hyenaschurch.com slash justice. If you go to that website, you'll see there's local organizations. There's different ways that you can participate in elevating the lowly, right? And, and there's, there's lots of information on there and even sermons about the subject, hyenaschurch.com slash justice if you're looking for ways that you can express your faith in this way. Now, to be clear, Mary, she's talking about what's going to happen through Jesus, and these events are going to culminate in his second coming, right? As you notice, we still have terrible regimes, right? Jesus has come. The baby has been born, but there are still terrible regimes in the world, all over the world. But just like the promised baby was born, the promised king will return. And God's promised ultimate restoration and peace. That should inspire us to want to see a progression of heaven invading earth while we wait. Right? We're not just trapped on earth uh, to let it rot right? until he comes. We're not just supposed to ignore suffering until he comes because he's going to clean it all up when he comes. He has called his people to be like him, to have the heart that he has. And we're seeing here in this song his heart for the poor his heart for the oppressed, and his heart for the lowly there. There's a reason why God talks about that so much. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are your eyes and ears opened to the impoverished, to those in need? Right? Why is there such a push to give during Christmas, especially to the struggling? Because God elevates the poor. And we are all poor before him and in need of his grace. If you're a believer, he has elevated you and he wants us to humble ourselves for the benefit of the others that he wants to elevate. 
right? We have neighbors in need on a local level, and we have neighbors in need on a global scale. And so it's a good time to stop and ask, how has God's grace to me turned outward toward others the way it does in this song by Mary? And she sings about what he's done for her, but then the focus moves outward because God not only wants to work in you, he wants to work through you. Right? And maybe this is a downer as we're thinking about Christmas shopping uh, but how many of us even know who made the presents that we're receiving this year? Right? Or, or what conditions they were in. And I, I'm preaching to myself too. Trust me, I have ordered plenty of things on Amazon. But, but just thinking about the awareness, the clothes we wear, who made these? Right? We click a button and it's here in two days. Wonderfully convenient for us, but who is packing those boxes? Do you know? Do you want to know? I can, I can tell you just from reading uh, a book uh, called Nomadland, the nonfiction documentary book, not the movie, uh, that there are a lot of otherwise unemployable grandmas and grandpas who are living in campers and vans and walking miles on concrete fo floors, right, wearing out their wrists by just the sheer magnitude of products that they scan per day. Right? They work to the point of wearing out their bodies for the holidays, only to be laid off come January, repeating the cycle year after year. And if you didn't know that, now you know. And I'm not saying this to guilt anyone, but my concern for you and I, and my concern for those of us who, who live here, right, we might have trouble grasping the magnitude of this passage we might have trouble grasping the magnitude of this passage. But what would it mean to somebody in North Korea? Maybe, maybe this will help us. You know, Open Doors, they're an organization, another one if you're looking to get involved. They uh, are a Christian organization dedicated to serving in places that are hostile to Christians and the gospel. And they communicate with persecuted Christians all over the world. In a recent letter from a believer in North Korea, uh, the author shares about the condition in North Korea, particularly the food shortage that has come that's worsened with COVID-19. And just so you know, North Korea operates on a military first policy, meaning the high ranking officials and those in the military, they get the first allotment of food and other essentials. And then the rest of the population gets whatever is left. And that's not much. He writes, this situation is like hell. It can't be imagined or understood without experiencing it. Most families can't get rice. Instead, they're eating speedy powder. It's a salty broth with little nutrition. Right? Now, Open Doors feeds 60,000 North Koreans every year. And the article I read said, many North Korean believers will share the little food that they have with others and will do the same with the food they receive from open doors called holy rice. One volunteer rem remembers meeting a North Korean woman whose grandmother would share food with their neighbors. When she was young, she used to get very upset with her grandmother for giving out food when there wasn't enough left for the family. He said her grandmother would smile and say, that's what life is. At the time, this woman had no idea her grandmother was a Christian. And after she fled the country, she became a Christian herself, and she realized that the songs her grandmother had been singing were Christian songs. 
this grandmother was living out the implications of Mary's gospel song. That's what life is, she said. Is that what life is for you and me? Right? What kind of hope might Mary's song well up in that grandma when she reads it? And why is she so generous in such poverty? Mary finishes her song with these words. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. The big idea, God keeps his promises. That's really the theme of Advent, isn't it? It's waiting, right? Waiting, but knowing that God keeps his promises. God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 17 that he'd make him fruitful, that nations and kings would come from him. He said that his covenant extends to his offspring through generations. Right? This permanent covenant to be your God and that your offspring would be my people. And, and he promises to give him and his offspring the land that would eventually become Israel. And Mary knows this promise. Right? This promise is being fulfilled in the coming of the king, in the coming of the offspring of Abraham, Jesus, who was descended from his line. Right? That Jesus is the king Israel was meant to have, and he's the servant Israel was meant to be. Mary was Jewish. She was part of this nation who had waited and waited and waited, and she's one of the first to know that the wait is coming to an end. She finishes her song celebrating that our merciful God keeps his promises. The end of the song is the basis on which we believe that God will do everything else that she sang about. The Savior will scatter the proud who conspired together. The Savior will topple regimes. He will elevate the lowest. He will satisfy the hungry with good things. And he will send away empty those who prefer riches over God's love. Mary, did you know? How did she know? It was confirmed when she visited her relative Elizabeth and John leaped in her womb. It was confirmed the first time she, a pregnant virgin, felt Jesus kick, right? She really was pregnant. She, when she labored in the pain of birth, when she watched him grow, when he took his first steps, right? When he grew in stature and in favor with God and man, as the Bible says. When she was amazed by his teaching, even as a child. When he left home to begin his ministry and when she followed him as his disciple. And she knew when she watched him die on the cross for the sins of the world and when his final words were to one of his disciples to take care of her. Right? When she watched him and hugged him as he resur- when, after he resurrected, right? And as she watched him ascend into heaven. Right? She knew when she prayed with his apostles in Acts 1.14, right? The first church, Mary was there. Maybe some of us don't know that. She was there in a church marked by generosity and sharing with anyone in need. She was there. And having died, she knows today, as she sees him face to face, her Savior, her Lord, her Son. That's how she knew and grew in her knowledge. We are blessed to be on this side of the incarnation. God 
keeps his promises. As we wait for peace, as we wait for his justice, as we wait for his restoration, let's prepare, right, by loving our neighbors, used by God to answer the prayer on earth as it is in heaven allowing the gospel to overflow so naturally like the North Korean grandma singing her Christian songs and sharing her last rations of food. She said it. That's what life is about. <laughs>